What the world needs right now is science. Science sees the world as it is, not as we want it to be. Climate change, it's happening. We need science now to tell us about the solutions. This is why what we do at the Climate Council is so important. I spent my life working out how the world works. It's the only planet we know that has life. Life has helped shape this system for three and a half billion years, and now we are a critical part of driving planetary level changes. We're sort of in the driver's seat now. We can't sit on the sidelines anymore. If you want to solve a problem, you have to take some leadership and fight for a clean, sustainable future. That's the late Will Steffen appealing to all of us to embrace science, particularly when that science explains why our climate is changing. I'm Robert McLean, your host of Climate Conversations. Welcome. This is the latest episode. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. And I extend my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Will died in uh, late January this year, that's 2023, at 76. He had been a climate commissioner and a co-director of the Canberra Urban and Regional Futures Institute, Australian National University Emeritus Professor, and he had a string of other titles and responsibilities that included such things as the Federal Government's Antarctic Science Advisory Committee. I called him Will, forgive me that familiarity, but he had been a guest on this podcast, and although he knew nothing about the podcast itself or me, he simply said, yes, I will do it. What a man. Australia is a lesser place because of his passing, and the climate community certainly mourns his death. Sadly, I was forced to change hosts for this podcast probably a year ago, and I lost the episode in featuring Will, and therefore I'm unable to replay it. Thank you, and it's a real honour to be with you today and to share my um, thoughts and memories of Will. Um, Will and I met in 2011 during that toxic carbon tax debate. And I remember him coming into the Department of Climate Change wearing an outfit pretty similar to this, a um, blue shirt, a grey jacket. He had his black backpack slung over his shoulder. He was a regular at the department. And I just started working there a couple of weeks before and he'd written a report which was a, going to be the first report of the Climate Commission and it was a substantive look at climate science in Australia and a rallying call to action. And I approached the meeting by um, sitting down with him and somewhat boldly telling him we needed to totally and fundamentally change the report, uh, reorder it and change the language. I don't quite know how I have the audacity to do that, but um, particularly he's a world expert in the field, he's an excellent communicator, he was 30 years my senior, but Will just listened to me and said, right, that sounds like a great idea, let's get started. And um, for me, that was the start of just such a wonderful collaboration in how we were working to change the language of climate change and extreme weather in, in this country. And every time Will would tell the story of our first meeting, he would uh, recount finding the phrase the critical decade at page 73 and that I found it and I elevated it to the title of the report. He actually did that but he'd always attribute it to me in the way that he would so often attribute um, uh, others uh, to others um, their contributions and he would always be recognising them and building up those around him. 
That's the CEO of the Climate Council, Amanda McKenzie, speaking at a memorial service for Will Steffen. The Climate Council says on its website, Professor Will Steffen was a brilliant scientist, a gifted communicator and a kind man. You'll find a link to that website in the show notes. I'm trying something different with this episode of Climate Conversations. The climate news is just pouring in non-stop, so much so that it's overwhelming me. It takes me hours and hours and hours to put together an episode, and I'm trying to modify that process in the bid to make it quicker, easier, and at the same time bring you more news. Bear with me. Rather than reading a piece from every story, I will simply make some general observations record a few bits and pieces from here and there, and then provide the links in the show notes. We'll see how that looks, we'll see how that works, and we'll go from there. But of course, of course, I will toss in the odd interview, or not the odd interview, I'll toss in the occasional interview, and every now and then I just will not be able to control myself, I'll have to have some sort of rant about something. We're all increasingly familiar with giant wind turbines dotted around the country, but there's now serious progress towards an offshore industry. A new offshore wind zone is being proposed by the federal government off the coast of the New South Wales Hunter region. That's home to the massive Liddell coal power plant that was shut down just last month. And further south, Victoria will host the first offshore wind farm in Australia, the Star of the South project. That's due for completion in 2028. Both these regions have been identified by the government as having world-class wind energy potential. The four other regions are off the coast of the Illawarra in New South Wales, the Southern Ocean region of Portland in Victoria, the Bass Strait region of Northern Tasmania and the Indian Ocean of Perth and Bunbury in WA. Let's hear more now from two companies looking to build this infrastructure. Emily Scavetti is from OceanX, which is working on the Novocastrian offshore wind proposal. Hi there, Emily. Hi, Geraldine. And Erin Coldham is from Star of the South. That's Australia's most progressed offshore wind project. Welcome to you, Emily. Uh, Erin. Good morning, Geraldine. Before we get into the details of your proposal, is it fair to say that Australia hasn't had to develop offshore wind because we've been able to put turbines on land? That's Geraldine Duke, the host of Saturday Extra on Radio National on ABC. And the ABC is the Australian Broadcasting Commission. And the segment she's introducing is Tackling Transitions Offshore Wind Takes Off. You'll find a link to that segment in the show notes. Now we have a story from the ABC News and is by Bindi Bryce and Natasha Shapova. The headline for the story is Energy Minister Chris Bowen announces new net zero authority to help transition from coal-fired generation. The story begins, the federal government has announced a new authority to guide coal-dominated regions away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen unveiled plans for the Net Zero Authority to support workers to find new jobs and training. He made the announcement on a visit to Musselwell Brook in the coal-rich Hunter Valley, where the Liddell coal-fired power station was closed last week. We want it to be a one-stop shop for workers 
who are thinking about the transformation and how they prepare for jobs of the future, Mr Bowen said. The authority will help communities attract new clean energy industries and support investors with those opportunities. of a painting or the protection of our planet and people. That was a powerful moment that got a lot of people talking and had some people scratching their heads, including people who are sympathetic to the climate movement. That's a small grab from the popular podcast Climate One. And this episode was entitled Get Up, Stand Up, What Actions Move the Needle? You'll find a link for that in the show notes. Now we shift to Yale Climate Connections for a story by the YCC team. And the story has the headline, Virginia Middle Schoolers Learn How City Design Influences Extreme Heat in Their Community. The story begins. As the climate warms, dangerous heat waves are becoming more common. And in many cities, low-income communities of colour are the most vulnerable. They often have the highest temperatures in the city due to urban planning practices of the past, says Theo Lim an assistant professor of urban affairs and planning at Virginia Tech. Two years ago, he led a summer program for middle school students at Roanoke, Virginia, that focused on urban heat. Students went in the schoolyard armed with thermal sensors. By taking direct measurements, they found that areas with grass and trees were cooler than paved areas. Lim says the experience helped them understand how city design affects urban heat. I'd like to talk with you in a relaxed manner about the climate crisis, but I find that rather difficult because I have, you see, a brain injury, and a product of that is I have a thing called aphasia. I have trouble speaking, I have trouble remembering, and I have trouble formulating my thoughts. I've tried writing things down, but it doesn't seem to work. Reading things simply doesn't sound like a conversation. And so this is an attempt at a conversation about the climate crisis. I have a friend who is quite clearly a denier. He says, all that's happening now has happened before. But what happened before was often decades apart. Whereas with the climate crisis, it's only often years, if not months apart. And they're far worse than what we ever experienced in the past. And the cost is immense. Also, he sees no value in electric cars. In fact, he says they will not be a reality in his lifetime. He's in his early 70s. Whereas I'm convinced that we'll see electric cars within this decade. Well, of course, we have them already, but by the end of this decade, they'll be mainstream. Most everyone will have an electric car. Or if they haven't got one, they soon will. He won't accept the evidence that some of the, most of the, nearly all the major car companies have said that by 2035, they will no longer be producing fossil fuel-powered cars. The internal combustion engine will be gone. They'll all be electric or some other means of propulsion. And just to get a little parochial, here in Shepparton, I'm I'm part of a group called Slap Tomorrow, which means nothing, but that was a name we chose and that's the name we live by. We are trying to set up, or we're not trying to, we are setting up a a barbecue using an induction hot plate and run by an electric car. And we'll do that in a public space in the city 
will invite people to come along and we'll provide them with a free sausage and some bread. And of course some onion to go with it. And of course some sauce. And it will be just an example of how you can successfully cook on an induction hot plate which is fired by a battery powered car rather than using wood or gas that just pumps carbon into the atmosphere. Coming up on June 17 this year, that's 2023, is the Swanpool Environmental Film Festival. The festival is organised in cooperation between the Swanpool Landcare, the Benalla Sustainable Futures Group, who have organised a thought-provoking film festival, which will be held at the Swanpool Cinema on Saturday, June 17. Three sessions start at 1pm sharp and include afternoon tea and an evening meal. Session one will feature the uh, CEO of the Winton Wetlands, Sue Labish. The film will be Rights of Nature, a Global Movement. Session two will see Professor David Caroli, who is from the University of Melbourne. The Climate Council is one of Australia's great climate champions. He is well known to people in the Goldman Valley as he's been to Shepparton and to Tura on three or four occasions. And don't forget your $30 ticket includes three sessions, afternoon tea and dinner, and catering is by the Swanpool Catering Team. You'll find details for the event in the show notes. I sit here recording this episode in something of a strange, even weird situation. In the background, I can hear preparations for the coronation of King Charles. As Prince Charles, he is celebrated for his interest in the environment, urging people to take action on climate change. And that is warranted. I don't disagree with that, but this whole process in London at the moment, he has flown, well he hasn't, but people have flown from all around the world to be a part of what's happening in London. They want to be part of the celebration. So the carbon footprint of the coronation would be massive. And I think is in opposition to everything that Prince Charles, King Charles ever said. It's a weird contradiction. I don't quite understand it. But it's evident of many things that are happening all around the world. People declare they're concerned about the climate crisis, but in fact, they do quite the opposite when it comes to how they live and how they behave. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. As I said earlier, this is a different way of doing Climate Conversations. I haven't directly mentioned all that many stories, but you'll find a host of them in the show notes, so please check it out. As I said before, thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. And I urge you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, every time I publish a new episode, you'll be automatically notified. Another important matter is that I'd love to hear from you, and you can do that via email at r.mclean, the number seven, at icloud.com. So... Please contact me. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to have some direction and get a better idea what those in my audience want. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And as I said before, please take care.